in Mark chapter 14, and we've been going through the passage uh, where Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a passage that's incredibly important for us to understand. Um, it is um, often said that while the cross is the place where Jesus experienced bodily pain, Gethsemane is the place where he experienced mental pain and torment. And it's something that's not spoken of enough in the church, and so I make no apologies for taking our time going through this passage. Um, we may be a little shorter tonight, and uh, uh, so we can finish it off next time rather than being long and trying to get it all in. But let's read through the passage one more time, then we'll pray and then we'll recap where we're at and pick up from where we left off. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And uh, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. and They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to this text, I pray that you would strengthen and enable me, Lord, in the midst of weakness to be able to speak your truth, Lord. Father, we trust that when Scripture is taught, that your Spirit speaks. May he speak to our hearts tonight and meet us where we're at. May we humbly come before your word, Lord, that he might speak to us. May he encourage, may he comfort, may he convict, and may he transform. Amen. So last time we didn't get too far, we spent the bulk of our time in Psalm 42, we'll get back there in a moment, um, but we are now here the night before the crucifixion, they've come out from the Passover meal, the last supper as it is known, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion has been instituted and as they came out singing a, a hymn and in, with joy, 
And Jesus uh, refers them to Zechariah, the scattering of the sheep, and they are warned that, and I think in a comforting way, as I said at the time, that they're warned that uh, they will scatter once he's been struck. And it's comforting because they'll know that though they have disowned him for that time, that he has not disowned them. And uh, then we came to Gethsemane, and here in Gethsemane, there is uh, this time where he comes to pray and famously prays for the cup to be taken where it possible. And we'll come to that in due course. But uh, he says to the disciples to hear and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John. We spoke of that last time. And then we have this phrase that is only used a couple of times in Mark. It's a very strong phrase. It's used often of horses that are kind of, you know, kind of making that kind of noise. It's used of, of, of great emotion. It's used of, as I said last time, in, intense emotional, uh, ex, an, an intense emotional expression. And, and as I routinely say, I think sometimes we just read the Bible too often in our Bible voice. And when we, when we read through and we're reading the words of Jesus, we maybe don't emote enough the way he would have, wouldn't have said things. And we're told specifically here that he's greatly distressed and that he's troubled. And I think for us to, uh, to understand how Jesus would have come across, how he would have spoken, how he would have been, we have to imagine someone who is greatly distressed in intense emotions and is greatly troubled. That's how he would have been speaking and how he would have been. And uh, there he says to them, and this is where we took off to the Psalms, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And the phrase there is one that is a, an allusion to the Psalms. And we, we were kind of going through Psalm 42. We didn't quite finish. And I wanted to see Psalm 43 as well. So we'll finish that off now. If we turn back to Psalm 42, we'll just recap uh, briefly what we saw there. Um, Psalm 42 is pretty well known. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We have this, these verses that are so familiar to us from worship songs and hymns. And as I said at the time last week, there is this, I think, misunderstanding for many who sing those songs of it's just an expression of discipleship. I want to really follow you, Jesus. My, my soul is longing for you. I'm after you. I'm all about you, God. Whereas, in fact, in the context, the, the center point really here is verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? I think it's hard for us to uh, imagine Jesus troubled like the psalmist is troubled. But th that's the picture that's being painted, and more of that in a minute. But the, the idea is that the psalmist is, is in turmoil. There's tears during the day, and there's tears keeping them awake at night. He, he's, he's sad, he's sorrowful, he's troubled. 
the, the cause of his trouble is not relevant right here. The fact is that he's distressed. And it's in that context that he cries out to God. He's like, Lord, I'm longing for you. I'm, I'm desperate for you. I'm going to collapse without you. I need you. And the implication is that the crying out to God is not something new this moment. And it's nor is it something that has been received. It's been reciprocated. It's not as if God, he's felt the comfort of God or he's felt the hand of God. God seems distant. And we'll come to that in Psalm 43 in a moment. And so much so that in his distress, the, his enemies would say to him, where's your God? Where is God? <laughs> You're a believer in God and look at you. Look at the state of your life. Look at the turmoil. Look at your distress. Where is God in this? And so, the psalmist, in his distress, cries out to God. And the psalmist then remembers, verse 4, I remember, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I will go with the throng, lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He used to be a person whose relationship with God was one that was, that was um, associated with joy. He'd go out and lead the procession. Hallelujah! Praise to Yahweh for all he has done. But now, now he just cries. Now he just cries. And then we have the refrain that comes twice. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? So he's saying to himself, to his very being, why is it that I'm upset? And he reminds himself, hoping God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There was a time in the past where there was rejoicing, and there will be, again in the future, a time of rejoicing. As I said for you, to you guys last week, for us, that time of rejoicing may be in this life, or we may have to wait to the next. But there will be a time of rejoicing, again. But notice the future. This will happen again. But now, what's, what now? Tears. Tears a day and tears by night. And it is in verse 5 there where it says, Why are you downcast my soul? Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? This is the same phrase that Jesus is using to allude, to point to Psalm 43. Now this, this is a principle, we didn't talk so much about this last time, this is important, because it's going to become very, very important on the cross. Just as Gethsemane is, is leading towards the cross, in the same way, what we're learning here in Gethsemane is going to lead us to things we need to know at the cross. There's two key lessons here today that we're going to need to learn so that we can understand the cross better, okay? Number one is this, when a New Testament writer speaker in Jesus' case, but writer in the sense of some of the apostles when they're writing letters, when they quote or allude to an Old Testament passage or, or, or section, they're pointing to the whole passage. They're not, they don't often quote entire chapters of Scripture. That wouldn't be practical to, to say, well, let, let me quote the entire psalm at this point. It's not practical in the writing, and it's not practical in speech either. So typically what was done, and we know that this is how it was done, 
is that what would happen is they would make a reference to maybe the start of a passage or to a key point within the passage. And they're pointing to that passage. So what Jesus is doing here in Mark, in Gethsemane, what he's doing is he's pointing us through the use of the same phrase, the same words, he's pointing us to Psalm 42. He's pointing us because, and here's the phrase that he uses about my soul in turmoil, he's creating a link, and the link is that the psalmist is in turmoil, and Jesus is in turmoil too. And I said this last time, and I'll repeat it again now. No, let me come to that in a moment. Let me finish my point first. When we see this, the New Testament writer pointing to the Old, we, this is why we look, we've got to see the whole context of the passage, and then we take it back. And the conclusion of my point was this. We're going to see Jesus on the cross quoting from another lament psalm. He's quoting lament psalm, he's alluding to a lament psalms here. He also does that on the cross. Do you remember that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, another lament psalm. And what people sometimes miss is they focus on him saying forsaking, and they miss that he's pointing to the psalm in its entirety because of the link of forsaking. So we'll talk about that when we come to the cross, but that's the principle that we're seeing at work here. But as I said, as I, as I said to you last time, and this needs to be emphasized, is that we don't associate Jesus enough with sorrow, with weeping, with mourning, with wailing, with sobbing. This is what is, when you find this word translated um, back in Mark's, you stay in the Psalms, but it's translated back in Mark's Gospel as um, greatly distressed. That phrase is used of, you know, in, in literature, outside the Bible as well. And it's a phrase that is used of this intense emotion. People sobbing, people wailing. And I do think there's a tendency in the church when we are, when we're, when we are in deep emotional distress to see that as being something problematic to be fixed. Seeing that perhaps in some circles, in some circumstances, even as sinful rather than seeing it as something that our Lord has walked through. And so, when Jesus points to Psalm 42, he's pointing to the entirety of the psalm. And here is the link. The link is that just as the psalmist is deeply troubled, Jesus is deeply troubled. Just as the psalmist is distressed, Jesus is distressed. This is our link. Has there been time when Jesus has rejoiced? For sure there has been. Will Jesus rejoice again? Oh, for sure there will be. But now, Jesus is in tears. Jesus is going through mental anguish. It is essential if we are going to understand the Christ whom we worship, that we see him here in his broken humanity. Wounded, weary, in turmoil, distressed. The psalmist cries day and night, and this is whom Jesus is pointing to, to express himself. But he's pointing as well to the entirety of the psalm, so I will just repeat briefly what we noted last time, the flow. In his distress, 
He speaks to God. He cries out to God. He reaches to God. God seems silent, but nevertheless, he reaches out to him. When we're in distress, that's what we must do. We must go to God. Sometimes, it doesn't seem enough, does it? Sometimes we need a human, a hug, someone to hold your hand, words of encouragement. And I'm not knocking those things, they're great things. And often they're God-given. But sometimes God says no. One thing we noted last time and we didn't really focus on, so we'll focus on it more now, um, and, and we'll pick up on it later as we move through the passage, probably next week. But he takes his closest friends with him for his darkest hour. And he goes to God. And when he comes back to them, they're asleep. Sometimes, when we want human comfort, it's not there. And it can be very, very lonely. But God is always there. I don't know how to say it without sounding trite. <laughs> because it does, doesn't it? It sounds so trite. Oh, what does it matter if everyone else deserts you? At least you got God. But it's not like that, is it? It's not like that. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in England a century or so ago. Very well known and very well loved even to this day. And he was a man who was considered the greatest preacher of his age. People travelled to come and see him preach from miles around. So much so that people came from America to hear him preach. And this is before airplanes. <laughs> they would come on a boat, come to England, I must go and see Spurgeon preach. This was the guy who the people flocking to his preaching was so great that he would tell his congregation, you must not come to the evening service because they wanted to keep the chairs spare, the pews spare for the unbelievers to come and hear the gospel. He was an amazing minister, but he suffered from intense depression. And he spoke of it often in his sermons. And he was, in many senses, centuries ahead of his time um, in, in this regard. I feel in some regards the church has gone backwards. But he's, he spoke of it often in his sermons and um, in, in the most vivid of terms. And if you, if you do struggle with that, I can point you to many of Spurgeon's sermons and his work where... Uh, he speaks of such things. And he said, concerning Christ, the man of sorrows, of course, as we, we call him, Isaiah 53 and verse 3, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. And, and, and in this sermon that I'm going to quote from now, it's interesting, Spurgeon says specifically he believes that Jesus suffered from depression too and was depressed in Gethsemane. And he says this, Personally, I also bear witness that it has been to me in seasons of great pain superlatively comfortable to know that in every pang which racks his people, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We are not alone. 
for one like unto the Son of Man walks the furnace with us. It is, I believe, something that we have to somehow wrestle with. We don't want it to sound trite. Don't worry, God's with you. But at the same point, we've got to find, as Spurgeon did, the comfort there. We have to believe by faith, as the author to, of the book of Hebrews said, that Jesus was tempted as we are. Because he suffered when tempted, he is able to help those being tempted or tested. When we go through trials, Christ has walked them before. I, at times in my life, have been so racked with depression, mental torment, mental anguish, I genuinely thought I wouldn't live, and I certainly didn't want to. But I have never suffered from, let me try and pronounce this right, hematohydrosis, sweating blood. There is in Gethsemane comfort. If you insist on your Jesus being someone, I mean, I've had people, I've said to them, you know, you can find depression in the Bible, Job, Jeremiah, Jesus, and they're like, Job, Jeremiah, Jesus? And they stop. And it, it catches their bias because it catches them thinking that there's something, there's something sinful or wrong there rather than it just simply being broken humanity. And not broken in the sense of sin, but broken just in the sense of the frailty of human flesh, the frailty of the brain, or as some scientists today are saying, the frailty of the gut that could be causing it. And, and Jesus here is not that comfortable Jesus who just talks nicely and uprightly and walks. This is the Jesus sobbing, weeping, begging, begging for his disciples to stay awake. If you read this and you read the passage, it's like, could you not wait one hour? You have missed the passage. You've missed it. You've missed his glory. You've missed his wonder. This is Jesus through tears saying, couldn't you just stay awake for an hour for me? That's the Jesus of Gethsemane. And it is crucial, it is crucial for our walks that we see that Jesus. Because at some point in our lives, whether it's something we have been through in the past, whether it's something we're walking through now, or whether it's something we will walk through in the future, there will be a day when following our Saviour means following him to our Gethsemane, where tears are our food day and night. And at that time, when the enemy comes and he says to us, oh, look at you. When he tries to make us think that God has somehow rejected us, that God is somehow angry with us, that somehow our tears are wrong. That Jesus weeps with us. For me, personally, that is the hardest thing for me to comprehend. 
when I am alone, when I am in turmoil, when I cry out, when he seems to have forsaken me, I know he loves me. I look at the cross and I know he loves me and I fight the enemy and his, his desire to make me feel God's wrath, God's anger. But to say he weeps with me is the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around. We need Gethsemane, saints. We need Gethsemane. Because he does weep with us. And so, we cry out to God, as I said. Our tears are our tears. We're in the midst of it. But we trust that God will ultimately be proven right. That's the end of the psalm, uh, the section of the psalm, it's the refrain. The second half of the psalm is where we cut off last time. And again in verse 11, at the end of the second half, we have the same refrain. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why, why are you like this? Because you know, be encouraged, that you will have joy again. And I think that the psalmist here is making in this phrase, in this twice-repeated phrase here, he's making a distinction between the tears and the turmoil. And that's the hard thing. The hard thing is saying, fighting the turmoil while accepting the tears. Trusting that in the midst of turmoil, there is hope, there is assurance, there is a tomorrow. And that's where the psalmist leaves us each time. But quickly, let's look through the second half of the psalm. My soul is downcast within me. There is a repetition um, here in uh, the second half of verse 6 as he kicks off the second half of the psalm. My soul is downcast within me. So the refrain in both sections is used as the introduction for the second half. He's just repeating this again and again. Three times he repeats it. This is what Jesus is linking us to. This is the center of this psalm. My soul is downcast. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over to me. Notice this. The first half of the psalm, he's crying out to God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. He's crying out to God. In the second half as well, therefore I remember you. Again, he's reaching out to God. And notice that the waterfalls and the breakers have gone over me. He, he recognizes that God is sovereign. God controls the waves, the waterfalls, the weather, the wind. And so in the same way, God controls the waves that crash over us. And so the psalmist is in this weird place where he's saying, I'm remembering that you're in charge, I'm looking to you, my eyes are upon you, and I know that the waves crashing upon me are your waves. You've allowed them. And we see that again and again in the prophets, how God does indeed allow such things. We see it in the book of Job and many other places of Scripture. By day, verse 8, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And again, you see the psalmist's tears and his turmoil going Godward, pointing to God. Guys, this is so crucial for us. It is not the tears that are sinful. It's not the depression that is sinful. It's not the wailing 
that is sinful. It's not the shouting to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that that's sinful. It's not the sobbing that's sinful. It's the isolation that is sinful. It is the shutting within ourselves and not opening ourselves to God, not taking our pain to God. That's not to say it's easy. In all of these lament psalms, again and again, I'm going to pick up on a phrase in a minute here, uh, here, but in these lament psalms, there is this crying out to God in the implication is that God is silent. That's why you have phrases like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, there is this remembering. He commands his steadfast love by day, and at night his song is with me. Steadfast love is a specific phrase that you use of God's faithful covenant-keeping love. Hence, steadfast love, faithful love. God is all the time there, by day, he's there. And what a lovely phrase, by night, his song is with me. Now, I think there's a specific reference there to, the, again, the covenant nature of God, but there is surely a poetic picture as well, that God is faithful to us while we're conscious, and while we're unconscious, yet he sings over us. Zephaniah speaks in a similar way of God rejoicing over Israel with singing. And though he might seem silent, his songs are over us while we sleep. Isn't that encouraging? A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now listen. Let me read the rest of that phrase, and I'll come back to it. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, that repetition. This person is so distressed, the psalmist is so much in turmoil, that people are looking at him and saying, this is not of God. God's not in this. Where is God? And if this is how you are. And again, I just want you to note, there is, that is a refrain that some within the church get awfully close to doing, and there is no place for it at all. There is no place for such. But there is a paradox here, a dilemma if you like, and here it is. The psalmist says here, why have you forgotten me? The very verse after he says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song was within me, is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And even as, and I know some do, some take the song as being, I sing to God at night. I, I prefer to see the steadfast love and the song being God's. You can see it either way. But, but either way, there is this intent within him to trust God. There is this reference to the faithfulness of God. So why is he saying, God, in essence, your steadfast love. You, you never forget me. Your steadfast love's always there. It's always there. You're a covenant-keeping God. Your love is... You're always there. Why have you forgotten me? <laughs> Doesn't that seem like a contradiction to you? It's not. Because the expression, why don't you remember me, is what the lamenters, the psalmists who would lament, would say to express the silence of God. But they understood that in the midst of that silence, 
that God was still there keeping his covenant. In fact, and this is crucial, the fact that they believed in the covenant-keeping love of God is why they cried, why have you forgotten me? Why don't you remember me? Why have you forsaken me? If they didn't believe that he was a covenant-keeping God, why even speak? Why you address him? Why say that? He's forgotten you. He's clearly not bothered. Say goodbye. Off you go, God. I'm going to go follow Baal. No, no, no. He has forgotten me in the sense that he's silent. He has forsaken me in the sense that I feel alone. But I know by faith that he is a covenant-keeping God. And he has not left me. And he never, ever will. That is our second lesson for the cross. Because when we come to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people will teach that God the Father literally forsook the Son. I don't believe he did. He's pointing us to Psalm 22 in its entirety, which we'll look at when we get there. And the psalmist in Psalm 22 is like the psalmist in Psalm 43, is saying, God, you've gone. I'm here in suffering alone. I'm here, I'm in suffering, and I'm enduring something which is so traumatic, for want of a better phrase, that those on the outside look at me and say, God's left him. And when Christ was on the cross, that's exactly what they said. And so, verse 11 ends the psalm, and it ends with that same refrain. And very briefly, if we look at Psalm 43, you'll notice in Psalm 43, in verse 5, we have exactly the same refrain again. So in a sense, Jesus isn't just pointing us to Psalm 42, he's pointing us to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people. From a deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? You see the same thing again? He's crying out to God. That's what you do in turmoil. You go to God. He's crying out to God. He then says, I trust you. You're God in whom I take refuge. You're the one I go to. My faith is in you. And then he says... Why have you rejected me? There is a sense in these Psalms where God has rejected when God has abandoned his blessings, when God has taken down his hedge of protection, when God has left us to great suffering. That's what is being expressed. I don't think the psalmist felt that somehow God was no longer faithful. The psalmist certainly didn't believe that God was no longer keeping his faithful covenant, keeping love with them. He's simply saying that he is weary, sad, and alone. And God seems distant. That's the expression. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Let me just say this. If you are at a time when you're in in turmoil, it's a phrase we seem to be using, distress, if you prefer it. Cry out to God. And you are free to use the word why. Or how can you do this? Why would you reject me? Why would you do this? Because what we're doing in doing that is we are not, we are not doubting his love. We're not doubting his faithfulness. What we're doing is we're appealing to his love and faithfulness. God, can't you see? 
Can't you see the, what you're doing here? Is, is, is bringing shame to your name? You know, the, the people are seeing me in this state. Lift me up, Lord. Let, let people see you come to the, to the rescue of those who love you. That's a good basis for crying out to him. That's a great basis for crying out to him. You know, sometimes when we pray for God to, to help us in a situation, we kind of almost do it like a spoiled child. Oh yeah, God, can you give me this? God, can you give me that? Like, like some sort of, you know, super wealthy, spoiled kid. Can I have a Porsche for my birthday, Daddy? That kind of thing, you know? But that's not what we're doing. We're crying out to him and we're saying, God, for your name's sake, that they might see that there is a God who loves his own. That's a much better basis for crying out. You know why? Because it takes us away from our selfishness to God and his glory. And James speaks of that when he says that we ask and do not have because we ask for our own sake. So, he then concludes the psalm, send out your truth, your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. You see, the first psalm ends, ends like, the, sorry, the second psalm ends like the first psalm starts. I want to come to you. I want to be near you. That, my friends, is the prayer that should be on your lips in distress. I want you, God. You seem distant. I feel forgotten. I feel rejected. I feel alone. But I want you. Come to me, Lord. Minister to me, Lord. And so, um, that is Psalm 42 and 43. So let's go back to Gethsemane. Let's go back there. And it is there that Jesus, as he says this, he says, my soul is very sorrowful. He's pointed us to these Psalms. So now we have a context for this passage. We have the great distress of Christ. We have Christ crying out to God in his great distress. We have Christ knowing the hope in the future in his distress. But nevertheless, we have Christ in distress. And then he does one thing different. He adds the phrase, even to death. This doesn't mean that he's upset because he knows he's going to die. That's not what the expression means. It means he's so upset, he's so in turmoil that he could die. He feels, at, at the very least, he feels as if he could die. It's as if I could not be any more upset without being dead. I don't know about you, but I can, I've certainly felt that way many times. But I've not sweated blood. <laughs> so who am I to talk? Jesus has. You know? I think sometimes it's tempting when we see those in distress and who are called stressed in distress that we'd say, oh, that's, that's the wrong reaction. Jesus sweated blood. Such was the, the anxiety and the stress. And I mentioned it briefly last time, but let me just say, for, for those of you who weren't here, 
to take someone in distress and someone who's clearly upset in a circumstance and to, and to simply quote scripture and say, oh, don't be anxious, as if somehow they're sinning, you know, be anxious about nothing, is not the context of that text. The text is there saying, look, come on, we don't need to be anxious, we've got God. It's not a condemnation, it's doing what the psalmist is doing in the midst of distress, which is saying, here's my hope, I'm going to trust in God. And it is unfortunate that there are those who would look at distress and would condemn. And I, I just find it astonishing that Jesus, when he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, there is no one alive now, nor ever before, nor ever will be, that will suffer greater mental torment. He has walked there before us. He sanctified the path in a sense. Zach S. White, who's written on this and on, specifically on Spurgeon's um, teachings on this, he says this, Zach says, because, because of this, in the context because Jesus suffered in Gethsemane first, when we grow numb toward God-talkers whose hope isn't realistic and who know nothing of what we experience, Oh Lord, may I not be that kind of counsellor. You come across those? God talkers whose hope isn't realistic and who know nothing of what we experience. He says when we come across that, when we grow numb towards them, he says, we needn't bypass Jesus. Sometimes the hope we get from our fellow man, I'm, this, is not, this is me now, not him quote, quoting him, but sometimes the need, the, what we get from our fellow man isn't enough. But guys, I've seen people who in their pain have cried out for help and been beaten and been hurt by those they went to for help. I've seen people then go to the help again and been hurt by the people they go to to get help from that hurt and so on and so forth. I've seen people in the church do the most despicable and horrendous things to people. But the saddest thing of all, sadder than all of that, I have seen people whose turmoil has been so great that they've not just bypassed the God talkers, they've bypassed Christ himself. Zach encourages us you needn't bypass Jesus. On the contrary, when we search for someone, anyone, to know what it means to walk in our shoes, Jesus emerges as the preeminent and truest companion for our afflictions. Realistic hope for us is a Jesus-saturated thing. Those who suffer depression, distress, turmoil. They have an ally, a hero, a companion redeemer advocating for the mentally harassed. Hallelujah. That's our Jesus. When Jesus goes through Gethsemane with turmoil like no other, he gives us a companion. He gives us someone we can walk with, someone we can be with, someone who is there. And then his request to his friends, remain here and watch. And as we'll see next time, they didn't. They let him down as well. 
Have you ever noticed that? How sometimes in the darkest of times and the worst of times, when you need just something to go right, that's when everything goes wrong. Here is Jesus in his darkest hour with his closest friends. And they let him down. So what does he do? Knowing that this will happen. He goes on a little further. He falls on the ground and he prays. To have no one and for God to seem distant is one of the most horrible things any person has to endure. But what it does is it gives us one option, just one option. Cry out to the one who has forsaken you, the one who has forgotten you, the one who hasn't remembered you. Cry out to God like a deer who's about to drop down dead in the desert if that stream doesn't come along any second. That's how badly you need God. Cry out to him. Beg him to come. Beg him to minister to you. Beg him to be there for you. To carry you. To be your strength. Cry out to him. Because though he seems distant, though it seems like he's forsaken you, though it seems like he's forgotten you, he is the covenant-keeping God. He is faithful. He has no anger towards you, for all his wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross, and there is none left to remain for any sin that you have or are or will commit. There is a God who comes and weeps alongside you, Unless you struggle to believe in something so difficult as a weeping God, he gives to us this precious gift, this Gethsemane. If I say any more, I'll ruin it. We'll finish it off next time. I pray that, um, I pray that uh, this, this passage, this God will comfort you in your times of distress. Maybe we should make a mental note of it, the date and the sermon, and it was in Mark and what have you, and people can refer back to it in time to come, because I want us to understand, because we follow the man of sorrows. He said, if you want to be my disciple, he said, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. Our path will come to Gethsemane one day, if not now, then at some point. And I pray that we remember the weeping God in the garden, the one forsaken by his friends, the one who cried out to God, the one who pointed his friends to the lament psalms to express his turmoil. And I pray that when we come across those in turmoil, that we might have compassion and love and that we might be to them what they can't receive from God at that time. That we might be a minister of God's love and God's grace. Let's pray.
Father, I pray for those in distress and in turmoil. I pray that Gethsemane might minister to their soul. I pray that we would flee the sin of isolation where we suffer alone, but that we might cry out to you no matter how long you seem silent. When the days become weeks, the weeks, the months, and maybe even the, some, the months become years, that we would keep crying out to you. Knowing that you weep beside us. Knowing that you love us in the midst of it. Knowing, as Christ knew, that you will use each and every trial for our good and for your glory. Amen.